Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Neurotransmissions. I'm Misha and I'm here with Joe and Ben. Hey. Hey. Uh, congratulations guys, it's episode 10, that's pretty cool. Big milestone. So, let's get the mailbag. A bunch of our listeners have sent very nice things to us. Uh, we really appreciate the support. Shout out to our big fan Simon, who wrote a incredibly nice email. Um, Simon, good luck uh, with your path grad getting school. into grad school. Yeah. Yeah. Best of luck. So how about our interview today? Yeah, it's a cool interview. Uh, I think this is our first episode that deals almost entirely with a single disease. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Patrick Fricelli from Georgetown University about his research uh, studying neural circuits involved in epilepsy. Patrick is an assistant professor in pharmacology, and he focuses not just on how seizures propagate through the brain, but also the interaction of anticonvulsant medications in the brain, uh, particularly during development. And just as background, Patrick and I actually go way back. Uh, we'll hear a little bit about how we overlapped in graduate school and how he very quickly rose to a faculty position. Uh, it's really pretty remarkable. All right, let's hear from Dr. Pacelli. Today we're speaking to Dr. Patrick Fricelli. Uh He is a professor at Georgetown University, and he's going to talk to us about uh, his research and his career. Uh, welcome, Patrick. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. It's so fun being down. Uh, Patrick's uh, kind of really unique thing, and, and uh, we went to uh, we actually crossed over in graduate school. And by the time that I was graduating, uh, he had already done his postdoc, and he was on my thesis committee. Uh, and he let me graduate, which is very nice. Thank you. Uh, you, you earned it. Yeah. <laughs> And so now Patrick is uh, a, a tenure-track professor at Georgetown. So can you kind of, uh, let's start there. Can you talk about how, how you got to where you are and what your sort of uh, outlook is? I mean, you're a very prolific uh, person, especially for such a young investigator. How do you think uh, that worked for you? Uh, I think it was a combination of being in the right place with the right people and the right resources, uh, along with not really sleeping all that much. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I had um, a combination of mentors during my doctoral work. Uh, my one principal mentor, Karen Gale, who was a fantastic advisor, uh, both in terms of the science and career aspects. And then I kind of adopted lots of other mentors along the way. So uh, Stefano Vicini, who's a slice electrophysiologist, so I did work with him. Um, Ludisha Malkova, who does uh, circuitry in primates, so I was able to expand my arsenal that way. Um, so I think, uh, that was a big part of it, being able to get the skills that I knew I wanted to have, um, and really get advice from multiple people. So in a way, even though I kind of stayed in one place, um, I moved through a couple of different labs to pick up new techniques, which is a, a big part of what, you know, the conventional wisdom says you need to go elsewhere and do a postdoc so you can learn new things and you haven't exhausted everything that there is to know about one place. I just made sure that I didn't stagnate uh, when I stayed at Georgetown. Right. And uh, when, I mean, uh, so now you do epilepsy research and we'll get into that uh, as well. But, you know, when you were essentially starting grad school, you went uh, straight from college. I did. Uh, right? So, I mean, how good of an idea did you have about what you wanted to do? You know, you went uh, around and you picked up skills, but uh, were you kind of focused in a specific place or were you sort of all over the board? Uh, I mean, in terms of the science, I've been pretty focused uh, since my undergraduate research, actually. Um, I 
uh, was lucky to work for a guy at Boston College, Steve Heinrichs, who gave me a lot of flexibility as an undergrad, more than I've ever given an undergraduate student, unfortunately. Um, but it let me explore some toxicology and also some epilepsy. So I knew going into grad school that those were things that I was very interested in. And I happened to wind up in a lab in grad school where I could work on those things. And um, I have also had kind of a long-standing interest in circuits in the brain, so I made sure to incorporate that. Um, so it, it was deliberate in terms of what I picked up and where I picked it up in terms of approaches to science and ways of thinking about the brain and nervous system function. It um, wasn't, wasn't just by chance. All right. And as you were picking everything up and as you moved uh, throughout your grad school, uh, postdoc, and now professorship, uh, so you are a very prolific publisher, and you know I'm sure a lot of uh, scientists out there would want to hear you know what what's what's like a trick, or how do you uh, get to be um, so quick with your publications? You know, a lot of people collect data and they kind of sit on it. Everybody waits around. People aren't sure how they want to publish. I mean, how do you how do you tackle these issues? So uh, I said this uh, in the in the panel discussion this morning, but I, I really treat unpublished data like a festering wound that's going to kill me if I don't get it out. Um, I, I think we do a disservice to the scientific community when we sit on data, uh, especially now in an era where things move really quickly. Um, you know, I, I don't want to. I don't want somebody to scoop me. Uh, that's that's one thing. Uh, but even on a topic where it's not likely to be scooped, I want it out there because other people may be planning experiments, uh, and I want them to be able to, you know take my results into account. Uh, some of my work is also pretty translational. Um, uh, some of our epilepsy work in the lab focuses on the effects of anticonvulsant drugs on brain development. Uh, and this is a, an ongoing issue in clinical neurology. I mean, we're doing this preclinically in animal models. Uh, but in clinical neurology, seizures are common in kids. Kids are treated with anticonvulsant drugs. And we don't really know yet all of the long-term consequences of these drug treatments. So when you're talking about children, are you talking about uh, kind of like babies or 7-year-olds or 10-year-olds? So it becomes actually an issue even uh, in utero. So this is an issue for pregnant, pregnant women with epilepsy who are on anticonvulsants and then the baby's exposed in utero to the drug. Uh, it's an issue for neonates and preemies uh, who have a high incidence of seizures and are treated with anticonvulsant drugs. Up throughout the first few years of life, uh, this is kind of like the peak incidence in epilepsy uh, in the lifespan. And uh, so are you looking at specifically the effects of these anticonvulsant drugs or, you know, these people that will already have seizures and uh, just the effect of the seizures being blocked in general? Yeah. Um, um, our, our main focus is trying to identify the per se effect of the drug. We can't do this in people because... Uh, infants with epilepsy, they, the, the medical necessity is to treat. And you're not going to give kids without epilepsy anticonvulsant drugs. So you can't detangle these things clinically. So what we're focusing on preclinically is the effect of the drugs on brain development. Um, and this includes structure, uh, brain volume, regional brain volume, um, function, synaptic physiology, uh, behavior, um, cognition, learning, and memory. And we've looked at all of these variables for a host of anticonvulsants to try to identify therapies that are uh, maybe a little bit safer um, or at least minimize side effects in these preclinical models. 
So you do this in standard, like, rodent lines? Yeah. Um, do you also do this in, like, epileptic type of uh, rodents? So it's it's an area that we've done only a little bit in. Um, and m- just finished writing a grant on it, actually, and we'll see how it does. But um, the little that we've done uh, has actually not been with spontaneous seizures in animals, but rather with evoked seizures. Mm. And... It doesn't look like the seizure activity attenuates all of it. Because one, one might hypothesize that if these drugs are turning down neuronal activity and seizures are turning up neuronal activity, maybe they'll kind of cancel out. Uh, it doesn't look like that's the case, but there's a lot left to be done. Um, so what, <clears throat> I guess backing up a little bit, you, you actually got on track to be studying epilepsy as an undergrad. What was like the hook with epilepsy? Because um, you seem to have been pretty hooked <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, the reason that epilepsy is kind of called out to me in terms of uh, the area of neuroscience and pharmacology that I work on is uh, it, it can kind of do double duty. Um, it's, it's a clinically relevant condition, but it also gives us insights to how the brain functions normally. Seizures don't propagate randomly through the brain. They follow constrained anatomical pathways they hijack the networks that are responsible for things like normal learning and memory. Um, so understanding the pathology in the circuit as well as the normal function of the circuit is one of the great things about the field of epilepsy research. We can really do both of those things. So it's an academically, I think, a very uh, stimulating area to be in. Can you describe a little bit what a circuit-level propagation of a seizure would look like? Like... Take us through the route that a seizure takes. And if we could even just uh, frame it a little bit, even outside of that, I mean, you know, a lot of people are familiar with epilepsy in general, but uh, what exactly, you know, people want to know what are the causes and, you know, exactly how are we going to fix it, right? Right. So um, there are a lot of causes. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, you know, we, we say epilepsy, but it probably more commonly or more appropriately and uh, should be called the epilepsies because it's not a single entity. Uh, there are genetic epilepsies, there are acquired epilepsies, uh, and these different epilepsies actually have different seizure manifestations, uh, depending on the brain networks that are engaged by a particular seizure. And is there like one kind that's more popular than the other? I mean, that, that, uh, occurs much more often. So the type of epilepsy that's probably most studied both clinically and in terms of the basic science is temporal lobe epilepsy. This is epilepsy involving the hippocampus, the associated cortices, the amygdala, the limbic system. Uh, The reason why this is a hot area of investigation is because it's the type of epilepsy that's most likely to be medically refractory. So it means that patients have a higher probability of not having their seizures controlled with pharmacotherapy, with drugs, uh, with temporal lobe epilepsy. Um, So kind of lost my train of thought there that was you you would you would ask if there was one that was more popular on the yeah if there was one that was more popular yeah. and then uh joe also asked uh yeah so you started talking about some of the brain areas like right right right, right. temporal lobe ep- epilepsy but um uh actually to follow up on what you were just talking about you're saying that temporal lobe epilepsies because maybe there's multiple types um aren't necessarily very uh responsive to pharmacological treatment. So what would the treatment be for somebody who has a temporal lobe epilepsy? Um, So the first-line therapy is always drugs. Um, 
the, the, the kind of total numbers in uh, the clinical reports that are out there suggest that about a third of patients will not achieve satisfactory control with medication. The rest will be controlled with drugs. Uh, for, Any ideas to, as to why? I think there are lots of ideas out there. I don't think we have a clear answer, though. Um, uh, and again, it may, may be partially due to heterogeneity of, you know, again, we're talking temporal lobe epilepsy, but some people will have seizures that start in one part of the temporal lobe versus another part of the temporal lobe. And um, some of those people will have seizures that generalize, which means that they'll go on to involve other brain networks. Um, so uh, not a clear answer to that. Um, but within the temporal lobe, uh, the substrate that's really received the most attention is the hippocampus, uh, partially because this is a target for surgical resection in some patients with temporal lobe epilepsy. Um, selective uh, hippocampectomy or um, removal of the hippocampus plus the amygdala um, have been used for quite some time as a treatment in refractory epilepsy. So just uh, essentially cutting a big piece of the brain out and throwing it away. Yes. To, right. And um, is, this, is this something that's still fairly common? And I mean, how much of your brain uh, gets cut out in these kind of things, right? So like this lobectomy is right where uh, we always imagined they were a big thing like in the 50s or 100 years ago or something crazy, but this still happens. And, yeah. you know. How significant and, is it? I mean, uh, I think a lot of clinicians, and I'm not a clinician, so this, this is my perspective as a basic scientist, but uh, from what I've heard from a lot of clinicians, they feel that it's underutilized, and I think that the data strongly support that. Um, the number of patients that are probable surgical candidates, that 30% that uh, don't respond well to drugs, uh, if they were referred for surgery, not all of them would be you know, good candidates for surgery, but some of them would. Um, and the number that are actually performed in the United States each year are much, much lower than the number that could be um, or would be expected based on the uh, overall prevalence of epilepsy. So it's, so it's still a common procedure, and most uh, major medical centers will have cases every year uh, with temporal oversection. And is this something that's... Uh I mean, you said you're, uh, you're not a clinician, so it might be difficult to answer, but uh, is this something that patients are readily accepting to? I mean, when you, know, when you tell them that a part of their brain is going to be cut out, is, is epilepsy that big uh, of a nuisance for them or a hindrance of lifestyle that they say, okay, sure? And I mean, what are the side effects uh, with this kind of thing? So on, on the first part, again, um, you know, only having spoken to... Um, a handful of individuals with epilepsy. Um, surgery is always a scary thought, right? Um, but what we know about risks associated with epilepsy, you know, raise the importance of finding treatments. And in these cases, that treatment might be surgery. Uh, the, what I mean by risks, individuals with epilepsy that is not well controlled have a higher risk of something called SUDEP, which is sudden unexplained death in epilepsy, um, a substantially higher risk. Uh, depending on the state that you live in, one seizure a year may block your ability to hold the driver's license. Um, so this, this has major impacts on quality of life. And, you know, the one seizure a year, 
that might not be so severe, but there are individuals that are having multiple seizures a day in some cases. Sure. So this, this is going to have a huge impact. In terms of the side effects of the surgery, um, like we said before, these same networks that, are, that seizures are propagating through are networks that are controlling things like learning and memory. So there's a whole area of study uh, trying to determine how preoperative memory performance predicts postoperative memory performance. So in the sense that if, uh, if a person is, for example, better at memory in general, and then they have the operation, are they going to be better in memory, uh, at memory in general after the operation? Yeah, and trying to figure out if the operation will spare function. Um, so if, you know, removing this structure from the temporal lobe is going to impair memory. Or, or conversely, you know, maybe the individual is already having some memory deficits, so taking away this damaged tissue may not actually cause additional problems. And so is this kind of trying to get to the root of uh, is one specific area of the brain involved in uh, either this, these specific kinds of memories or this specific kind of uh, function that this person, uh, you know, uh, well, so, so, so probably the, the most famous, the most famous, the most famous case in uh, neuropsychology is uh, uh, that of patient HM. And uh, you guys have both heard of HM and I'm sure plenty of people out there have heard of HM as well. But HM died very recently. Should, should we know his name by now? We do. I can't remember name. it. Yeah. Um, HM is just so catchy. Yeah. yeah HM is very catchy. Um, <laughs> but he got a surgery in what? It was the 50s, I believe. That's so, right. right? Um, bilateral resection of the temporal lobes, and it left him uh, with uh, profound uh, anterograde amnesia, so he couldn't form new declarative memories. These are the kind of autobiographical memories that we think about. Um, kind of like the guy in Memento. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was like that for the rest of his life, um, couldn't form these new autobiographical memories. Um, so that actually focused a lot of attention on hippocampus as a substrate of this sort of memory process. Um, when we think of any of these memory processes, though, we have to think of them functioning in a circuit. Um, the hippocampus doesn't work in isolation. The hippocampus receives inputs from the uh, rhinal cortices, so inputs from the perirhinal and anorhinal cortex. Um, I mean, this is part of what uh, the Mosers won the Nobel Prize for, right? I mean, mapping the uh, grid cell inputs to the, uh, to the mm -hmm. hippocampus that help generate place fields. Um, and the hippocampus has outputs. It doesn't just stop with the hippocampus. It projects to other regions. And all of these regions, to go back to, I think, what you had asked before, are regions that seizures can propagate through. So the seizure may start in the hippocampus and propagate to other parts of the circuit, the rhinal cortex, the thalamus, um, the amygdala. It may stay focal, it may stay localized, but it may propagate through that circuit. And, you know, in rodent models, we know that almost any of these sites, the amygdala, the hippocampus, the uh, rhinal cortex, the piriform cortex, which is olfactory cortex, the thalamus, um, if you stimulate them, you can trigger seizures under using the right stimulation parameters. So when you say that the, the seizure is propagating through the circuit, maybe originating at uh, hippocampus, uh, is it sort of like a chain reaction, like something goes off in the, the hippocampus that just 
causes every you know it's like falling bookcases in a, a warehouse or something yeah I mean that's that's kind of one way to think about it uh, and we don't necessarily know what triggers the onset of the seizure um, that initial site uh, and we, we actually also don't have a perfect concept of what makes most seizures stop on their own um, some seizures don't stop but most kind of self-terminate uh, so it's based on their synaptic organization um, if the hippocampus is projecting out to uh, enteronal cortex and then that has projections to, you know, and so on. And it, it propagates through the whole, whole network. Like, like you said, falling bookcases are dominoes. Um, that's, a, that's maybe a more appropriate yeah. analogy. <laughs> falling um, bookcases is very specific. Yeah. Dominoes. But one of the nice things about understanding the neuroanatomy and the, and the functional neuroanatomy is it opens up a lot of targets in the brain for therapeutic intervention. So things like deep brain stimulation. Um, and deep brain stimulation is used clinically um, in epilepsy um, in places like the uh, anterior nucleus of the thalamus has so, been a large target. Uh, so deep brain stimulation is where uh, electrodes are physically stuck into the brain, kind of like the brain is skewered with these uh, long electrodes, and then sending current to them essentially shuts down uh, uh, different parts of the brain. Yeah. Well, hopefully not skewered. G- g- gently lowered <laughs> gently, these electrodes gently lowered. in place. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. Tomato, tomato. Um, but that, that's, that's an approach that has a lot of promise, and identifying uh, additional places in the brain where stimulation may be effective at controlling seizures is, I think, an area of ongoing interest. Um, it's one of the things my lab is interested in, uh, trying to identify the networks by which seizures propagate and find sites in the brain where you can stop their propagation. So what are some of the, the tools that you use uh, in your own research that allow you to get into the circuit and understand how this network is uh, having seizure-like activity? Yeah, I think um, the majority of the work we're doing is in uh, whole animal, um, rats typically, Um, and we use a combination of classic and maybe newer but now fairly standard approaches uh, for manipulating neural circuitry. So we make lesions, um, we can can damage tissue, um, which mimics what happens in surgery. Uh, We can micro-inject pharmacological reagents, drugs, to turn on or off specific populations of cells or activate or block specific receptors uh, for particular neurotransmitter systems. Um, And then we've also uh, been using optogenetic approaches and chemogenetic approaches, which are more recently developed uh, approaches that take advantage of really the power of molecular biology and uh, some fortuitous... uh, uh, evolution and yeast. Um, yeah. So, so the, the beauty of those, those newer approaches is they allow you basically real-time control or uh, remote access control of populations of cells in the brain. And um, the, the groups that developed them, I mean, they, they've really changed, I think, modern neuroscience. Um, the, I mean, 10 years ago, I think, was the first publication from uh, Boyden and Dyseroth showing uh, optogenetic activation in uh, cultured neurons. 
And um, in the last decade, it's, it's, I mean, it's just completely revolutionized uh, how we approach circuit-level neuroscience. So optogenetics is the idea that you can essentially uh, stick this light-activatable virus, uh, these light-activatable light proteins uh, created by genes in, into the brain, so you can shine a light onto the brain and certain neurons uh, will start firing or will stop firing depend on, depending on what you want to do. Right. Right. Um, so uh, the beauty of it is it gives you real-time control over those neurons with millisecond precision. Um, and it avoids issues associated with electrical stimulation approaches like current spread and knowing whether you're actually turning the cell on or off. And um, So there's that. The chemogenetic approach is a, is a similar approach um, with the kind of most recent versions uh, uh, promoted by or developed by Brian Roth. Um, and this basically allows you to inject a chemical, a drug, uh, that um, would be otherwise inert um, into an animal. And when you've expressed, again, using a virus, a particular protein, when you inject that chemical, it will turn the cell on or off. So it's the same sort of idea. You just don't have to have any hardware permanently implanted. Um, so these, these approaches... Um, Electrographic monitoring, um, which is you know a mainstay in epilepsy and probably always will be. With collaborators, uh, we have ongoing work in the slice um, using some calcium imaging uh, and uh, looking at effects on uh, uh, seizure propagation and slice when we manipulate certain genes. Mm-hmm. Um, so a, a kind of a wide variety. It all comes back to function for me in the end, though. Um, that's kind of where my background is. Uh, and it's really the output of the nervous system, right? So I want to look at behavior. I want to I see the response of the whole organism to whatever it is that we're doing. And so you mentioned that um, in addition to really trying to understand the circuit, you're testing the effects of a number of uh, anticonvulsant medications, things that would be prescribed to patients, presumably. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably... Uh, a tricky area to be a researcher in when you're testing whether or not something on the market could potentially be causing problems. Um, how how much of an issue is that for you? And have you actually found yourself in a situation? Have you gotten where, in any trouble with it? Anything awkward? Uh, you know, when I was starting... We can also edit this out if you don't want. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was starting this work, um, uh, you know, the, the, some of the first epilepsy meetings that I had gone to, um, there were some clinicians who were basically saying, well, your data can't possibly be relevant or meaningful because I give drug X to my patients. And this, this was the logic there, right? It's like, I'm giving this to them, so it has to be good. Um, I would say that I haven't encountered that recently. Um, if anything, uh, I think uh, the general view in the epilepsy community has really um, shifted. So um, there are clinical and preclinical studies going on in my group and, and, and many others um, looking at these drugs. And I think now there is a consensus that some... Not every one of these drugs, but some of these drugs uh, can have long-lasting effects on brain development. And that doesn't mean that those drugs are bad. 
it means that there may be other options that should be considered in certain cases. And in some cases, what it might mean is you, as a clinician, probably would have to uh, weigh the risk of not treating the disease with treating it with something that will have an effect of its own and sure. what the different outcomes of that would would basically be. Absolutely. And I'm glad I don't have to make those decisions. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, 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 happy, I'm happy in the lab. Um, what do you see as sort of the next five to ten years of epilepsy research? I mean, what are, what are some of the hot topics that everybody's competing to answer? And um, what do you see as sort of the the next egg to crack in this uh, figuring out how to do this, treat epilepsy? Yeah, I think um, one of the large-scale initiatives has been um, uh, genome sequencing. Um, so there are a lot of groups that are doing really, I mean, it, it's, it's amazing what can be done now. Um, uh, to try to identify the genetic causes of more and more epilepsies. And um, certainly in uh, the time that I've been in epilepsy, the, the number of genetic epilepsies is, uh, identified genetic epilepsies has increased significantly. So I think that's, that's, that's definitely a hot area. Um, and there are, there are consortiums in the U.S., uh, Europe, and uh, Australia that are all working on these uh, problems to try to identify the genetic causes of epilepsy. So I think that's one. I think... Um, Actually, what percentage yeah. of epilepsies or cases of epilepsies have people attributed to a genetic uh, source? Because a lot of clinicians, if you ask them, they'll say, oh, it's not hereditary at all. But I mean, obviously, that's not completely true because there are plenty of that do have some many genetic markers. Yeah, I mean, the, so, so there, there are epilepsies that are absolutely genetic, uh, unquestionably genetic, period. Um, uh, and these are the, a lot of these are the syndromic epilepsies that, that are seen in childhood. Um, uh, as for the total percent, I actually don't know. Um, but um, there remains a very large percentage of cases that doesn't have a genetic cause. Um, and those cases, um, you know, some of them may be things like uh, following traumatic brain injury. Um, some of them, the cause may be unknown. Um, no history of brain injury, no history of genetic issues. So what the hell is causing it? Um, yeah. Global warming. <laughs> uh, Can't rule it out. <laughs> no. <clears throat> so I, one of the things that I've personally seen uh, in, in neuroscience in general is models of network activity, particularly like computational theoretical neuroscientists can create epileptic type conditions yeah. in in modeled neural circuits. Um, usually, I've seen this um, with people changing the balance of excitation and inhibition, different types of neurotransmission sure. uh, in these models. Um, is there a known role of um, of neurotransmi- different neurotransmissions, um, like causing a seizure? Like, can you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, sure. Um, yes. Uh, there, there, there's, there's definitely uh, um, evidence from that, especially from the pharmacological side of things. We know that um, 
blockade of GABA receptors triggers seizures, not just in animal models, um, drugs like uh, metrazole, penylene tetrazole. So blocking um, inhibition. Exactly. Which would cause cells to be overly excited. Exactly. Uh, and, and that was actually used clinically at, at one point. Um, uh, kind of fell into the same category, I think, as uh, electroshock and insulin shock therapy, and I think was also proposed as a treatment for barbiturate overdose. Um, uh, so, I mean, we, we know that blocking GABA, blocking inhibition, can trigger a seizure. Um, we also know that increasing excitation, again, in animal models, can trigger seizures. So the, the most, one of the most common animal models of uh, chronic epilepsy is an animal that's injected with a drug that activates excitatory transmission, uh, canic acid. And... Uh, this drug uh, causes the animal to have a prolonged seizure, and then after that prolonged seizure, um, if you wait a couple of weeks, the animal will start having spontaneous seizures. Um, so there's that. Um, there's, there's anatomical evidence for loss of inner neurons in certain types of epilepsy um, in certain areas of the brain. Um, but again, it's probably going to vary from type of epilepsy to type of epilepsy. Um, cause, location, when in development is probably also a big thing. So there's so many pathologies, like you really just have to identify what you're dealing with and try to understand that specific type of pathology. I think so. Um, but I think there's also hope for more unified therapies. So a lot of the drugs that are used to treat epilepsy work on multiple types of epilepsy. Uh, and then there's also the hope that we might be able to find brain stimulation targets that work on multiple types of epilepsy. Um, you know, in, in my lab, we've looked at um, a, a pathway that is normally thought of in the control of motor movement, uh, but stimulating this particular area of the brain uh, can actually suppress seizures in a lot of different brain networks. So... Um, it, can, it, it may represent a locus, a site of uh, uh, kind of broad-spectrum seizure control, but um, who knows how that will pan out in the future. All right, so we're close to running out of time, but um, to kind of uh, finish everything on, up on a, a fun or a depressing note, I don't really know, uh, let's talk about... You know, we, we always want to hear about what, what you're interested in and, and how you got into science. Um, do you hate anything about science? I mean, there's, there's a lot <laughs> of, like, there, you know, there are a lot of uh, things that we have to deal with as, as scientists. And there are a lot of, there's, there's certainly a lot of red tape um, and a lot of things that could be improved. Uh, do you have any pet peeves? I mean, is there, and even more seriously, I mean, have you ever considered actually seriously leaving science and to do something else? Uh, I've never cons seriously considered leaving science. Um, it's my dream job. It's the perfect job for me. I get to think about questions that I find interesting. Um, I get to wake up thinking about them. I get to go, sleep, go to sleep thinking about them. I get to find other people that want to help me answer these questions, and we get to work on it together. Um, it's, it's fantastic. Um, even, even if I left academic science, I would still need to do science. I, I, I would uh, maybe industry or something, but, I, but I've never even really seriously considered that. Um, the difficulties in science, I mean, we all know what they are. I mean, funding. Science is not free. 
Um, you have to pay people's salaries. You have to pay for experiments. You have to pay for reagents. Um, and to do that, you have to get grants. And that's particularly a, a problem in neuroscience, too, now, right? Because, I mean, neuroscience is this kind of sexy field that's growing really quickly, and the funding is, it is not following the numbers of people at all. And, but it's a problem across all the biological sciences. All, all, NIH's funding has, was, was flat, actually negative, when adjusted for inflation over the last decade, except for that little burst when we had the uh, Recovery Act. Um, good news is it looks like that's turning around a little bit now. Um, but just grant, had our first little bump in funding. Thank yeah. you, Congress, for the first time. Exactly. <laughs> the, just, just beginning to reverse the trend. Uh, that, that's a frustrating component. Um, you know, you have to write a lot of grants in a year to get one funded. Um, a lot. And, and, and writing, it's, it's not like you just like sit down one weekend and just like hammer out, a, hammer out an R01, which is kind of like the gold standard NIH grant. Yeah, I mean, you're, writing, like, you're doing essay writing contests essentially for yeah. your entire job, and you're applying to continue being paid yeah. all the time. Um, and, and your muse is fear of lack of funding. Fear of lack of funding, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I've had nightmares about like funding, literally nightmares, uh, like wake up in a cold sweat nightmares about funding lapsing and having to fire somebody, for example. Um, you know, so that part is not fun, um, the, the, the stress associated with it. I have to say, aside from the stress component, I actually kind of like the process of writing grants because it really helps me organize my thoughts on a project. Um, and it forces me to spend time really going through all of the logic. And whenever I do that, I obviously, you know, had some kind of long-term ideas of where I wanted a project to go. And as I, as I go through the logic of working on a grant, that almost always shifts because I'll realize, oh, well, that experiment doesn't really make sense, this experiment. So, so th there's a positive aspect to grant writing. Um, I just wish that more of them got funded. Um, and I wish it didn't have to come at the cost of spending time actually doing science and writing papers. Um, so that's, that's kind of the only real bummer in science for me. Uh, and it's hard. It is. And I think a corollary of it is it, it's scaring or yeah, maybe scaring is the right word. Uh, a lot of really promising people out of science people that would be doing good work and being productive and contributing to our body of scientific knowledge are leaving the field because they want some job security or they don't want to write 10 grants a year or 20 grants a year. Um, you know, and I, I certainly don't blame them. Um, but it, it is, it is a little sad. Um, but on the upside, uh, it may begin to turn around, and um, even given those downsides, I, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine a better job, right? Um, it's, it's, e even when it's stressful, it's fun. Okay. All right. Great. So, Patrick, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, this was a great conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. And that's our show. Thanks for listening, folks. Cool stuff. And stay tuned. We're going to hear more from our conversation with Patrick on a future episode that uh, we'll be releasing soon that deals with the intersection of politics, 
research and medicine in general. This show is produced by MPFI and the Office of Scientific Communication. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, at NeuroPodcast, uh, and, you know, in person, if if you want. Yeah, just follow us around. Follow us around in person. Um, All right. right, Well, thanks uh, for listening, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.